Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. David Natrika is a pediatric surgeon at Phoenix Children's Hospital in Arizona. In this conversation from earlier this year, we took a deep dive into pediatric trauma with Dr. Natrika from both a clinical perspective, but also from an organizational and systems level. Check out the show notes for the links to all the papers and guidelines we discussed in this episode. Dr. Natrika, thank you so much for joining us on, on Cold Steel. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. And, uh, you know, I know you're busy. You're at the Western Trauma Association meeting right now. So, again, we really appreciate it. Could you tell the listeners maybe uh, a little bit about your, your training pathway um, who, who may not know you? Oh, sure. So, um, you know, it's funny because you get asked, you know, what, what exactly is a pediatric trauma surgeon? And the answer is it's someone who claims to be a pediatric trauma surgeon. Um, the, the truth <laughs> is I did my <laughs> I did my general surgery uh, training at Emory. And so I was down at Grady um, six months a year, taking every third night call. And, you know, trauma was just completely integrated into my DNA as a general surgery uh, trainee. And then um, when I went to uh, do a fellowship, um, in, in and, I, and, and when I was in Houston, I um, had the pleasure of working with David Feliciano. And so, I mean, you know, you just don't get any better training than that. And then um, when I went to do my pediatric surgery fellowship, um, I went to Houston, Texas at Texas Children's. And so um, once I got there, um, I um, covered uh, pediatric trauma um, at uh, Ben Taub Hospital, which, of course, is Ken Maddox's hospital. And um, so another two years of pediatric surgery, but also um, covering all the pediatric trauma for, for Houston. And so, um, uh, when I, when I got done, um, the last thing I wanted to do was to take care of another injured child. And so I moved to Phoenix where the pediatric surgeons didn't do, uh, pediatric trauma. And, um, within a short period of time, uh, it became very clear to me that, um, I, my training background might have something to offer. And, um, in 2008, I started the first level one trauma center, in Arizona, the first pediatric level in trauma center in Arizona. And so uh, that's kind of uh, how I, you know, got to the point um, that I am now. And along the way, um, there were some uh, gaps in research and um, some friends of mine um, uh, whose uh, whose names are household worlds in the pediatric uh, uh, surgery community said, hey, um, what would you guys think about doing some uh, pediatric trauma research? And um, that uh, morphed into uh, Atomic, and um, and things just kind of went wild from there. I love it. You know, it's 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 funny. You, you and I and, and folks like Neil Perry and Lorraine Tromway, we're all biased having been through Grady, but I truly will go to my grave with the belief that that, that era, with you at the front of it and probably me at the back of it, or the four of us, is, is really was really the pinnacle of trauma training in, in the U.S., and we really couldn't have had it any better. I mean, every single day I do something that I learned there. It's, it was a remarkable place at a remarkable time. Yeah, and uh, I didn't have the sense enough to appreciate it when I was going through it. Yeah, so true, so true. Well, this is sort of a 30,000-foot question, um, Dave, to be honest, and, and it, it might be difficult to answer, but 
you know, the, one of the jokes, of course, is that, um, and maybe it's not a joke, maybe that's unfair, but really that, you know, that pediatric uh, uh, medicine is not just, you know, li- little kid medicine or, sh- or little adult medicine. Um, but, you know, in, in that sense, what, what are some of the biggest differences, maybe biggest challenges um, between adult and, and pediatric care um, with regard to injury and trauma specifically? So um, I um, I can illustrate it with a story and and when I was uh, doing my general surgery training um, I had a fair amount of pediatric uh, trauma um, during um, during my general surgery training and um, I had just finished uh, you know a, a rotation as a as a chief you know a third year chief um, and uh, managing pediatric trauma every single day and um, I went back to Grady as a fourth year resident and I was managing. Um, an adult patient with a grade three splenic injury that I wouldn't have blinked twice about on the ped service, and and I nearly killed the guy, and um, and this injury that was completely innocuous in kids and never would have qu- required an operation um, needed an operation in in an adult patient, and I realized that um, that the reason that it's hard for uh, most adult trauma surgeons to take care of of injured kids is because they are just completely different envies. And so if you have this amazing skill set as an adult trauma surgeon, you know um, what needs to go to the OR and what doesn't. If you take that and apply it to kids, um, you're not necessarily optimizing what the kids can do. And the kids have proven that they stop bleeding, and they really stop bleeding a high, high percentage of the time. We're talking 97% of the time. One maybe not even medical side to what I've observed from my um, pediatrics rotations that the anxiety and emotional level in the room when a pediatric trauma case comes in, and maybe it's because in Canada we don't necessarily, thankfully, see the same level as maybe what you saw in Atlanta, uh, but the anxiety level is palpable. And how do you manage that as a uh, pediatric trauma surgeon? And how is that different from your experience working in adult trauma? Um, it, it's interesting because, um, and and this is this is what happens when you get spoiled and work at a pediatric trauma center is that that anxiety just isn't there, and so um, and part of the reason that the anxiety isn't there is because they're they're every single person in that room can identify a child who's in shock. So at an adult trauma center, um, there's a good chance that, that only the trauma surgeon is really going to be able to identify shock early in a kid, but at a pediatric trauma center, every single person in the room knows which kid is in shock and which one isn't. And so um, we, we spend a lot of time um, you know, te- uh, teaching and emphasizing that you know, blood pressure is not an indicator of shock in kids. So you know, shock is inadequate perfusion, and, um, and um, inadequate perfusion in kids manifests in paleness, uh, delayed capillary refill, um, a high heart rate, and uh, cold levels. You touch their their you know their their feet and they're cold, and their pulse quality isn't good. And unlike adults who have a lot of reasons for having pulse quality that may not be great in kids, um, if their pulse quality isn't good, they're in shock. That's interesting. Well, you, you make it sound so simple, Dave. But uh, you know, what, one of the things I think that we all, I ideally I think, spend a career trying to do is is condense the nonsense, so to speak. But really, to try and make trauma care. Um, you know, globally as, as uniform and as high quality as we can. That's the ad, my adult comment. My observation in pediatric trauma outside of centers like yours 
um, is that it's even more variable. So what, what sort of advice would you have for these centers that don't see much volume and are trying to do their best and maybe are, are, are housed with some really superb clinicians and, and fantastic people, but again, just don't have that volume that, that you live in every day? That is, that is a great question. And so um, I, I think that, um, that there are a couple of things that, that um, uh, low-volume uh, centers that, that treat a low-volume of kids uh, can do. One is you have to trust your physical examination. It won't mislead you in kids. And so um, uh, that's, that is clearly you know, one, of the, one of the things that, that, you, that you, we all know how to do it. Um, but we don't always trust it. And then um, shock index has been amazing. So um, the shock, what shock index does is, is it allows you to, to identify which patients are not really at risk of crumping. And so, um, and, and that's a good portion of patients. And so when you, when you look at the, 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 the SIP or the, or the shock index pediatric adjusted, I'm not even sure that you need that much adjustment. You know, if you if your heart rate is higher than your systolic blood pressure, then you need to worry a little bit. And if it's not, your kid is probably not in shock. And so I think that um, that, that is definitely something to lean on is, is shock index. And the nice thing about that is a lot of times people are really uncomfortable about knowing what uh, a normal um, systolic blood pressure is for, for kids. And it's, you know... Um, you know, it's it's you know, sixty five plus uh, plus two times their age. Well, yeah, that's easy for me. But you know, it, you know, when you haven't seen a kid in a year, you're like, what was that number again? And shock index doesn't make yeah, that exactly. Number. I, you know, you you just you take you take two numbers and divide them, and if it's if it's greater than one, you're in trouble, and if it's less than one, you're okay. And um and the the, the pediatric adjustment the pediatric adjustment basically says for younger kids maybe one point two um, is okay. And, um, um, you know, and once you get 13 and it's, you know, 0. 0.9, but, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know you need to memorize those numbers. I think if you, if you can remember 1.0 and say, yeah, the, the heart rate's, you know, higher than the blood pressure, let me, let me worry a little bit more about this kid. I think that goes a long way. And it's clear that you've done a lot of thinking, um, about how to manage trauma. And it's clear from reading your CV that, you have been very influential in just putting down the research as well to, to back up the way that you think. Uh, I'm particularly intrigued by the work that you did with Atomic and the, the, the stuff that came out of that, talking about managing pediatric blunt abdominal trauma non-operatively. Can you talk a little bit about how that came together and um, uh, why is it that we've, we've... or how did we come to this idea that we can manage a lot of pediatric trauma non-operatively, as you said? Um, I think that um, when, um, uh, by the time that the Atomic Group got together, um, a lot of us were, were having a little bit of uh, frustration in that we had a lot of information, but, but we weren't applying it. And I don't just mean the, the, you know, the, the adult trauma centers, which were taking care of the majority of the kids. I don't think that, that the pediatric trauma centers really had a concrete idea of, of how to apply this new information. And, and um, there was some groundbreaking research that had been done in Arkansas um, by Sam Smith that really said um, kids that are, um, that are going to fail non-operative management actually show up, show that very, very early. And um, we, had, we had kind of taken one direction with the APSA guidelines that um, I don't think it pushed things um, forward 
um, it was it, it pushed things forward, but not but but it, we learned a lot, and we didn't need to use that anymore. And so, um, what what happened was we got together and said, let's take the available literature and see if we can make a guideline that actually is easy to apply and useful and evidence based. And um, that resulted in one of our early publications, which was the which was the, the great assessment that we published in the Journal of Trauma and. That was um, that was everyone getting together and figuring out what questions were important, um, putting together the the algorithm, and you know we started with some with a general algorithm, and then we refined it and we refined it, and it was an iterative process. And those co-authors on that paper worked really hard, so that by the time that anyone outside of our group saw the algorithm, um, we had hundreds of hours of work. Um, making sure that algorithm uh, made sense and um, and was going to be useful. So uh, the 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 first algorithm that anybody ever saw ever saw was actually version eleven of the algorithm. That I mean that that document I should say those documents that's come from that group, Dave. You know, honestly, you you guys are, are clearly very proud of it, and you should be, and you should go to your grave. Incredibly proud, like the they really did reset the bar for for care of injured pediatric patients. Uh, they're unbelievable. Um, extending from that, then, and I know this is again, it's a thirty thousand foot question, and it's it's probably really hard to answer. But for the for the chiefs um, doing their Royal College examinations, or for the board exams in the U.S., if if you were to condense um, really pediatric trauma care down to a handful of of, of bread and butter pearl type statements, what, what would you tell them? You know, whether it's don't miss X or do Y, what, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, that's actually a, not a hard question. I think uh, number one is um, 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 40 mils per kilo of blood products is a marker for a patient who is going to fail non-operative management and or going to die. And I think that, um, that, that having that um, number in, in your head um, allows you to to know when I'm going to not linger in that trombe anymore, and when I'm not going to try anymore, and um, and and so I think that that's a that's a really good touchstone for for successful non-operative management. And so if you say, well, I got a kid and they're in shock, um, you know, if they haven't gotten forty per uh, uh, for per kilo of blood or four units of pack cells, then maybe I should think about giving them some of that. Um, the next thing that's most critically important is that a child that arrives in your trauma center um, from shock um, after a blunt abdominal injury, the only thing that you know is that they have bled. You don't know if they're still bleeding. And I think in the adult world, um, it's, more, it's much more common that if you're in shock and have bled that you're going to keep bleeding. But that's not necessarily true in pediatric trauma. And a lot of those kids, a good portion of those, uh, those kids get transfused and they stabilize, and they don't stabilize transiently. They stabilize forever. And um, and I think that, that giving them a shot of a blood transfusion um, in the emergency room um, is good medicine. I don't think it delays things from most uh, trauma centers, and I think that you'll find that, that some patients look a lot better after they've gotten a blood transfusion. So um, if they're in shock, give them blood. Um, the, the the other things the the last thing that's that's so critically important is to know that kids that fail non-operative management 
they do it early and they, they do it really early, probably with, within four hours of injury. And so, um, the, the kids who are not going to do well, you'll know early. Um, if you, um, if you give them a challenge of blood and, um, and they don't respond to a blood transfusion or they respond just ever so briefly to a blood transfusion, that's not a candidate for non-operative management. That patient's failed. And so if you have those touchstones, you know that I gave blood and they got hypotensive again, you're done. You, you know that you gave them blood and you, and they stabilized and you haven't gotten, given them 40 per kilo, they're probably going to make it. Those really help you in, in clinical practice. And I think uh, a lot of that um, is starting to show up on the exams as well. Particularly in Canada, it's, it's hard to come by a, a trauma laparotomy. Um, and that's just, that's even in the adult world. And I, th- I think that's even, you get even less exposure to pediatric trauma operations. Uh, and yet when you do have to do an operation, both for adults and I'm sure for children, it matters even more that you're, you're well-trained. How do you envision us solving that paradox going forward? Um, you know, if, if you're a pediatric trauma surgeon and you don't have a, a pediatric practice, um, you're not going to have the skills to do it when you need to do it. And I think the same is probably true um, for a lot of trauma centers, which is that you you do need that acute care surgery so that you're operating every day so that if you do need to go into the abdomen and, and take out a spleen or, or pack a liver or repair a retrohepatic cable injury, that it, it hasn't been so long since you've been in the OR that you're, that you're confident and capable and able to do that. So I, I, I don't think that, that limiting your practice to trauma only at a place that doesn't have a high incidence of severe and or penetrating trauma um, is a good idea. Dave, let me ask you maybe a little bit more of a controversial question. I can only imagine that setting up from a mechanistic point of view, a level one pediatric trauma center must have been, uh, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure a pleasure, but also a bit of a nightmare. How do you, I mean, that's, maybe before I ask the question, I'll just state, obviously, like that's a level of leadership that a lot of us probably can't fathom. So how how do you generate that interest? How do you support that interest? How do you make that happen? Um, So you you take every bit of political capital that you've amassed over the last decade and put it on the line because the the reality is that, that people, people, will do it if they trust you and people will do it if you can convince them that the reason to do it is right. And so, um, when I went to, um, um, special specialties and I went to pediatric surgeons and said, yes, this is going to negatively impact your life. Yes. You're going to have to spend the night in the hospital to be a level one trauma center. Um, uh, I said, uh, I, I explained the reason that you, that you went into medicine and that you were given this great opportunity to operate on kids was to save lives and you can make a difference and let me show you how. And then we took the numbers of, of what the observed mortality was uh, at the time and what the expected mortality was at the time and showed them how in, in our catchment area, how we could make a difference. It's amazing that that um, very simple but powerful narrative was sort of enough to galvanize everyone forward. Like That's really cool. Well, for for most people that um, that was enough and um, and and then the other thing that happened was when we started to get pushback from specialties that that really thought that this was going to impact them negatively to a point that that was that would interrupt their lives 
um, we had to listen to them. We had to, 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 when they, when they said, we don't want it, you had to ask them, tell me why, tell me what your concerns are and let me see if I can mitigate those concerns. And, and everybody had a, had a, a different set of concerns and ones that I, that I wouldn't have necessarily anticipated or assumed you have to ask. So when the urologist started pushing back a ton, um, about it being a trauma center, I, I'm like, like urologists, it's not that common of a, of a thing. And they're like, well, we're worried that the, the trauma is going to constantly bump our cases because that's what we experienced during residency. And so, um, we, we had to address that. We had to address how, um, how we could have a trauma center and not have it impact the elective surgeries um, for the for the orthopedic surgeons. You know their biggest concern is that they couldn't get OR time, and so we we had to address those. And so every specialty had different concerns. You have to ask what they are, and and sometimes they're a little bit hesitant to tell you what their concerns are. Maybe they they're worried that it'll be that it'll be seen as self serving. Or maybe it'll, they're worried that it'll be taken in, in the in the wrong light, and so they they don't necessarily want to be forthright with why they don't want a trauma center. But you have to push them, and you have to kind of get to the bottom of it. And once you start hearing what their objections are, then you need to make legitimate um, concessions and legitimate um, rules or or uh, or resources available to make it so that those things don't come true. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, again, I'll I'll just state it uh, for a second time. I mean, that, that's a level of leadership, Dave. That that is that is rare and it's unique, and and uh, and you should be proud of it. Um, maybe the last question I'll 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 ask you surrounds um, you know, going to specialty meetings, whether that's trauma meetings or like adult trauma, whether that's peds meetings. Uh, I'm getting to know you now for for a reasonable number of years, Dave, and I. And in watching you at these meetings, it, I get the sense that you really deeply enjoy it, that you really find the benefit of going to conferences and, and, and interacting with folks. And I was just wondering, you know, given that level of passion from your point of view, what, what do you see the benefits of, of, of these meetings as, not only at your um, relatively senior um, stage, but, you know, for trainees and fellows and, and junior staff and so on? If if you practice surgery your entire career the way that you do on the last day of your general surgery training or your last day of your fellowship training, you will not be doing a service to the people that you care for. And so, um, you, you the 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 need for continuing medical education is real. And I've I've encountered surgeons who practice the same way they did when they finished their training twenty years ago. And the, those people are an embarrassment, okay? You just can't do it. You have to go to the meetings. You have to see what's current. And not every, not every idea that gets floated in a meeting is a good idea, but some of them are. And, and at some point, you have to realize that, that you've got to change with the times. The truth is that in 2020, there's almost nothing that I do the same way that I did in 1999. Now, laparoscopy was groundbreaking, um, uh, uh, a change in the way we practice medicine and laparoscopy kind of came of age in the nineties. And by the time 1999 came around, it was, it was, um, uh, completely accepted, but not necessarily well done. And so, um, and, and so things had to change and, you know, we, um, the, you know, the, the critical view of safety for gallbladder surgery had not been described, you know, 
And now it's like, not only do, do we do safer gallbladders, but we actually have a method that we can teach uh, trainees that if you're seeing this view, that you're going to be a safer surgeon than if you're not seeing this view. And, and that, that's, I, I don't, I don't see that that's going to change, you know, for the next 20 years. I think that it's, it was absolutely true um, 20 years ago and 20 years from now, you're not going to be doing the operations the same way that you are in 2020. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.